In this episode of the Fit for Golf podcast, I am joined by Marty Jertsen. Marty is the VP of Fitting and Performance for Ping. He is also an exceptionally good golfer, having qualified for a number of major championships and PGA Tour events. Marty is genuinely one of my favorite people to talk to and one of the smartest I know. He has a hugely vast knowledge of a wide range of golf performance variables and has tried his best to implement them into his own game and help others with theirs. In this episode, we focus mainly on how conditions such as wind, moisture and temperature affect our golf shots and how we can improve our ability to factor them, factor them into our shot selection. We also dig a little bit into Marty's playing career and hear him talk about his major championship experiences. Just before we get started, a reminder that Fit for Golf has its own app. Golfers of all ages and all standards are making huge strides in their golf performance, fitness and health. There are programs to suit everyone and there is an abundance of material to suit people working out at home or the gym. Visit fitforgolf.blog forward slash app to find out more. You can get 20% off a 12-month subscription with the code FFGPOD. Now to Marty Jertsen. My good friend, Marty Jertsen, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Mike. So uh, been looking forward to coming on the pod. Yeah, thank you very much for taking the time out. I really appreciate it. You are genuinely one of, in my opinion, the brightest minds in golf. If I have a, a question, something that's rattling around my head, you're, you're top of the list in terms of getting a text message rather than uh, diving down the Google <laughs> rabbit hole or the, or the Twitter rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, Marty, you're an excellent player having played in multiple majors and PGA Tour events, and you're also an engineering and equipment expert. This might take a while, but please tell us about your golf, education, and work background. The floor yeah, is Mike, yours. I'm, yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a lucky guy. I've uh, been work, working at Ping for close to 20 years now, and I got my degree in mechanical engineering from the Colorado School of Mines. Uh, I uh, I went to Q School once, decided, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go chase the tour. I did it once, and I failed at Q School. I quit quickly, which I am grateful for in hindsight, and went to work at Ping as an engineer, uh, working on product design, and then... Um, Kind of through my journey here, joined the PGA of America. So I'm a you know Class A PGA uh, professional, um, and did a lot of design work on club design over the years. And then you know I'm about I'm 41 years old now. About age 30, I started playing more golf and competitive golf, and that's when I first uh, qualified for my first major championship and played in the Shriners event at um, in uh, in Las Vegas at TPC Summerlin. I've been fortunate to, to uh, play in a handful over the last 10 years or so. Um, and, uh, also, yeah, work on, I think what's helped me play good golf and, and be a good engineer at ping is that trying to solve problems for myself. And we have a big crew at ping that does the same thing. Engineers that care a lot about the game, their own really game. good players, really, good players. really good players in ping. Yeah. We always have players playing in the, in USGA mid ams and four balls and on TV and winning the state ams and things like that. So it's, it's fun. Um, and, and, you know, I think it shows that we, we, you know, it's personal for us of trying to solve these problems. And so I'm fortunate to be in a position where I think it's kind of what I do is, you know, I uh, have curiosities for myself, inspired by folks like you, Mike, that ask great questions, never ending and all of our other customers. And we try to come into the office and 
solve them in a technical way and then productize them and, and provide those solutions to people. So I've been fortunate to do that on a bunch of equipment designs and driver designs. Uh, did the G30 driver, G410 driver as the lead engineer on those. Um, and now I'm solving custom fitting problems and speed training problems and golf ball fitting problems. I'm, t- I'm trying to trying to have my fingers in a lot of the different parts of uh, parts of the industry. Excellent. So, like obviously, Marty, with your kind of wide ranging background and and wealth of expertise, there is tons of things we could go into here. We could probably fill ten different podcast <laughs> hours, but for this one. Um, I'd like to focus on how the environment affects our golf shots, which is something that anybody who plays golf is dealing with, whether they've even thought about it or not. Um, There's a couple of obvious environmental factors that come up more often than not. And the first one I'd like to start with is wind. So and where I'd like to start with this, and then you can take it away, is that golfers all over the world talk about how they're playing in a one, two, three, or four club wind. Yep. But I learned from you and Andrew Rice that this isn't quite how wind works. Can you get us started with that, please? Yeah, definitely, Mike. I think the environment and wind is, uh, it's, it's, you know, kind of the final frontier for us or, some, you know, somebody with technology to solve. And for me, I think about wind. I, I use Aimpoint for green reading. And I think about wind much like you think about a percentage slope for reading greens and the impact it's going to have on the break, right? It's you have a, the, in green reading, it's the force of gravity mostly acting on the ball. And depending on how long it's going to be acting is going to determine the break. And you can solve that very easily from a physics standpoint. We can solve wind in exactly the same way from a modeling standpoint, except wind is not constant. (laughs) So imagine you have a putt, you're reading the green and the slope's changing from 2% to 4% to 3%. You can't predict it. So you have to use these probabilistic thinking to come up with your strategy. Well, I think it's going to be on average three and a half or something like that. And so uh, we've tried to solve wind in the same way as kind of aim point, but obviously the, the wind varies and that's what makes it much different and much more unpredictable and much more challenging. Um, but yeah, there's some, there's some big things with wind and, and when it comes to ball flight, and I'm sure we'll talk about temperature altitude, some of those things, you know, it's going to be very dependent on the air density. And so one of the things with wind it's going to be different at a a lower altitude and colder temperatures where, you know, there's a, a more dense air than there would be at hotter temperatures and higher altitude. So the wind's going to affect your ball much more if you're playing at sea level and when it's colder than when you're playing at, at a high altitude and hotter temperatures. And that makes it harder to hit the ball straight when it's colder and it makes it harder to hit the ball straight at lower altitude and so um narrow fairways i was thinking about um you were there mike at uh at harding park a couple summers ago it was freezing yeah and there's very narrow fairways and it was the lowest fairway hit percentage in pga championship history and extremely windy too and very windy tons of crosswinds yeah so you had cold uh sea level windy and 22 yard wide fairways you know, it was you kind of probably could have predicted that it would be the lowest fairway hit percentage, and sure enough, a very accurate player um, yep. won won the tournament. 
And so somebody who hits it very straight. And so, yeah, that's one of the big things with winds. It's going to vary. So if it's, if it's, if you're playing at high altitude and warmer temperatures, the wind's going to affect your ball less because the air density is going to change. Um, so yeah. And then it comes down to how much is the wind going to affect your ball flight? Okay. Um, and it's going to change based on whether you're into the wind or downwind. So that's probably a good place to start. Forget about the crosswinds for now. And let's say you have a hurting wind. A hurting wind is going to uh, uh, affect your carry distance more than a helping wind will in terms of, you know, if you want to look at 10 miles an hour of of hurt versus 10 miles an hour of help. Um, It's going to be very dependent on how hard you hit the golf ball and your, your exact launch conditions. Uh, But I think for the listeners, Mike, we could, we can, we could try to draw some like general rules that can help them out. Yeah. Um, One of the things I think, and I saw it on Twitter today was that you can use a percentage. So 1% per mile an hour might be a good way to calculate the effect of the hurting wind. We've actually seen that rule kind of break down. And so in, 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 you know, on your wedges and your driver there, that, that doesn't really apply in terms of using that, that rule of a percentage, we like to go with more of a constant. It's going to be a constant. If you have 10 miles an hour hurt, it's going to hurt your wedge, your seven iron, your four iron, your three wood, all about the same actually from a carry standpoint. Um, and so a way that, you know, I think the, your, the listener could kind of figure out how much is that going to be for them is to take their seven iron carry distance. So let's say, uh, you hit your, you carry your seven iron 160 yards and you say, okay, uh, you can take that percentage. So 1% per mile an hour. So 10 miles an hour off of that's going to be 16 yards. Okay. So you had 10 miles an hour of hurt, 16 yards. That's going to play like a hundred and, uh, yard shot. Oh yeah. 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 For yeah. hurt. Yeah. Now for help, it's going to be about half as much. So eight uh, yards, it's going to play like eight yards shorter. So you'd play that 160 minus eight, 152, if you have 10 miles an hour of help. So that's where it's about one and a half times more effect for the hurting wind than the helping wind. That kind of scales up. It's a little bit differently at my speed. It's about maybe more 1.3 miles an hour of, of, uh, of help versus hurt. 1.3%, uh, you mean? Yes. Yeah, because as you hit the ball harder, you're going to continue. You're going to hit the ball harder. You hit the ball higher. That ball's going to stay in the air longer for the helping wind. Uh-huh. And so it's it it it, it uh, becomes closer to one to one the faster you hit the golf ball. Okay, uh, and the harder you hit the ball, and the higher you hit the ball. But I think that's a good kind of working rule. So whatever you whatever that. 10% uh, number is on your seven iron distance, you then can apply that to all clubs. So it doesn't matter whether you're hitting a, a four iron or a pitching wedge. If you got a 10 mile an hour hurting wind, you can just say it's going to play 16 yards further if you hit your seven iron 160. If that makes sense, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's about half, half, half that for the helping wind. Yeah. Okay. Half but that as, for the helping wind. as you get, uh, up through the ranks of players who hit the ball further, that starts to become slightly closer to one to one. Yeah, like one point three to one. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So basically, everybody's going to be between one point three and one point five. Somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that's kind of for standard trajectory shots. Like, let's say you're playing in the wind and you don't, you don't change your, you don't, uh, you know, ch- change your trajectory a lot, which is fine. I think that's another good question is like, what makes a good wind player? And it's yeah. not always the player that necessarily hits the ball lower in the wind automatically. I think it's a, it could be the player that just can predict what's going to happen, you know, and use the wind really well. I mean, I, I going back to Harding again, I watched Tiger on a few of those holes um, where there was a helping wind off the left and he teed it high and launched it way up in the air and hit a big fade and rode the wind. I mean, he mm-hmm. probably, and he plays a golf ball that uh, allows him to do that. It will accentuate that effect. The, the tour B excess ball uh, curves more and is going, he's going to be able to ride the wind and fight the wind more and use that. Uh, you know, obviously has the skill and know-how and expertise better than anybody ever uh, to be able to do that. But it was, it was fun to watch him do that in person there at Harding Park. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. Um, carrying on with that. So like, obviously you're very much a distance enthusiast. Um, and most people probably listening are too, and you already touched on it a little bit. What are some strategies we can experiment with? Like everybody loves driving downwind. No one ever gets to, you know, a straightaway par four, par five. It's 15 miles an hour straight downwind. And they're like, I wonder how I should approach hitting this drive. They just yeah. hit it harder because it doesn't go offline as much. And obviously it feels good watching the ball fly further. Yeah. But when when we're playing into the wind, what are some strategies that might be a good idea to try and maximize distance? Um, can you tell us about that? Such a great question, Mike. I actually think that's probably the most underutilized, um, you know, technique and finding of wind that you stated. You, you stated right there, and it might not be obvious to everybody. When you are hitting downwind, for every 10 miles an hour downwind, your dispersion is going to be reduced by about 10%. So I know a lot of golfers out there use different kind of course strategy techniques of I need a you know, 50 yard wide fairway to green light my driver or without penalties or whatever to green light mm-hmm. my driver. Well, if it's, if that's downwind, you can bring that thing right in. And I do that a ton, especially here in desert golf, where the you, you hit the ball in the desert, it's like out of bounds. And so let's say you I got played with me in the desert, Marty. I, oh, yeah. You know, I know, you know, oh, I know yeah. all about that. <laughs> yeah, you've got some other fairways over there, Mike. I remember that. <laughs> um, but you've been trending, so we need, we need to get back out there and play. Um, but if you have a drivable par four and it's only 40 yards wide and you're, you're, you're like, oh man, the risk assessment isn't there for me to, to try to drive it. But if it's 10 miles an hour downwind or 15 miles an hour downwind, that's going to play like 30 yards wide, right? Or 35 yards wide. And now boom, or, or I'm sorry, it's going to play like 50 yards wide, the opposite. Yep. So now boom, you can green light that thing. So when it's downwind, absolutely, it's going to straighten out your, your, your dispersion, and you can be much more risky or, you know, technically speaking, you yeah. can take on more risk straight downwind. So that's an important point I wanted to highlight there, Mike. But when it comes to your question of, of into the wind, I think that's a, that's a, a, a challenging scenario where if you're straight into the wind without any crosswind, you're going to want to try to reduce your spin axis as much as possible and reduce your flight time. So it's all comes down to reducing the time that the wind's going to act on the ball. And that's where hit, that's where hitting a lower trajectory shot, if the course and the conditions allow for it, is very beneficial. And uh, I just was in that scenario last week at um, 
um, d- down in Austin, Texas, playing in the hill country where you have a lot of elevated tees uh, and a lot of tee shots straight into the wind. And I hit these like stinger three, three irons and stinger drivers where you try to get the ball out of the air as soon as possible to reduce your flight time. Because if you can reduce the time that the wind's acting on the ball, then it'll reduce the amount of impact it's, it's going to have. And so, yeah, I would practice trying to reduce your curve as much as possible for those, those ones that are just straight into the wind. And it's kind of like one of those scenarios, Mike, it's just, you have to ante up and hit a good shot. Like it's, yeah, it's yeah. going to be, it's going to be one of the most challenging things when you get that hole that's straight into the wind, it's going to magnify your dispersion by that 10% is going to go the other way. So a 50 yard wide fairway 10 miles an hour into the wind or 50, 50 yards without any penalty 10 miles an hour into the wind is now going to play like 40 or if it's a lot into the wind, it's going to play like 30 or maybe even 25. And so, yeah, you try to get, keep the ball low in that scenario, reduce the amount of time the wind's going to act on the ball and, uh, and try to reduce your spin axis as much as possible. So Marty, this might be an interesting way to look at for people listening. Um, obviously you've, You've experimented, like you just said, with hitting lower shots into the wind. I think most people find it easier to maybe hit, like, let's say, a punch or a stinger, like four or five iron than a driver. But obviously, yeah. that's going to go way shorter than a driver. Yeah. So what what do you do when you get to a, a swing or a shot where you're changing from, you know, you've just hit a stock driver, let's say downwind on three. Now you get to four, it's playing back the other direction and you decide, okay, this is a stinger driver. What changes in your setup or in, you know, maybe your swing thought or feel? And then also, have you actually measured this on TrackMan and looked at what changes in terms of launch conditions? Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm actually, as, as you become a more skilled player, I'm a fan of hitting different vertical trajectories with your driver. I think that's an important skill. I think I know there's some other folks in the industry that say, just hit that one shot with your driver. But if you go, if you went watch the masters this year, you saw some players out there on the holes that are narrow and they were hitting it low. You were, I think you were there, right? Mike? I was. This yeah. Year? yeah. And you see how much vertical change. I mean, Matt Fitzpatrick hitting tee shots down there, super low. And then you get on other holes and you, they send them up super high. Even just, uh, I actually got to see more of it yesterday. You, you know, you, you know yourself, you get to see more golf on TV than when you're yeah, at, an, yeah. at an event. But watching the tournament in Mexico yesterday, it was really windy. And through, through the week, it was cool because uh, the featured group the first two days on TV was Ram, Champ, and Charles Howe III. Oh, yeah. All unbelievable drivers. Yeah. And, like, they were throwing up some, like, six and seven launch angles and, yep. like, yep. 70 and 80 feet apexes, whereas, like, yep. you'd see some of them getting, like, the 130s, like, normally yep. and stuff like that. So it was really cool. But um, what do you do, Marty, with your with your – uh, technique and kind of setup, and how does it change? Yeah, I, I actually have been loving the Stinger driver lately. So I hit it a bunch last week at uh, at Barton Creek in Texas, and uh, so I tee the ball very low. So mm-hmm. when you tee it low and you hit your driver lower on the face, you will just through some interesting things in the gear effect, you'll minim- minimize your probability to have a lot of draw spin on it. Yeah. And so then I can shift my path a little more to the right in terms of that's my kind of swing thought. But then I hit down a ton and kind of neutralize it. So I will tee the ball low. And in terms of my pressure trace, I start shifting. I kind of shift to my right foot early, almost before I take the club that move the handle back 
and I start shifting into my left big toe very early and very aggressively. I'll choke up on my on the on the driver just a teeny bit. Um, and I will almost feel like I'm hitting down on it with a draw swing. So it's mm-hmm. like, I'm, I don't want to hit down on it and swing left. I have my swing direction feel and kind of swing thought is being a draw swing. But then I hit down on it a ton through my pressure trace. I try to do it through like my pressure trace. And so I just, I shift very aggressively into the left foot. And then I do a very abbreviated finish and try to have like tons of extension uh, you know, lumbar and thoracic extension through the shot. And so I end up with a kind of a very abbreviated finish over, over to the left. Yeah. Um, and yeah, my launch conditions, we we're just talking about it this morning with my, with my driver, when I hit that shot is about, I can go as low as five degrees, but I would say it's more in the seven, seven and a half degree launch, uh, standpoint. And my spin goes up because I'm hitting down on it to 27, 2800, but that's okay. Uh, and my ball speed, Mike, is sometimes can be even higher when I do that because I'm de-lofting it. So I'm delivering way less loft and I'm, pro- I'm probably using more lateral force uh, in terms of my speed generation. So my ball speed will stay the same as normal and sometimes actually be even higher. So, you know, wow. 178 to 180 range. And what happens to club head speed? About- yeah, club head speed is down a tiny bit from uh, like my peak. Yeah. You know, uh, kind launching of downwind. Yeah, yeah launching <laughs> downwind. Uh, but again, ball speed can go up because because of the deal off. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. That's something yeah. worth kind of thinking about for the listener too, in terms of like from a fitting perspective, like check that your lo- the loft that's being delivered at impact is maxing out your your speed. I guess. Yeah. One one what, one interesting. Playable. Yep. One is interesting thing to think about that we've been kind of teasing our 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 tour players with is the idea of if you're playing a links course, so an out and back course mm-hmm. uh, in, in the opens going to St. Andrews this year, this would be a perfect place for it. Or I even thought about it at Kiowa last year where the, the you know, half the holes are going exactly yeah. one way. The other one turned back and go the other way. So St. Andrews this year would be very similar is the idea of playing two drivers, you know, so you have a downwind driver, and your optimal launch conditions for that would be launching it very high with a lot of spin. Like you would never play this type of driver. Mm. And because your dispersion is going to be straightened out, you could play it longer in length. So the longer length, while we get more clubhead speed, more dynamic loft, it's okay that the dispersion might be a little bit higher because you're going to, that's your downwind driver anyway. And then and you, you want could, the high spin to keep the ball in the air for longer. Is that absolutely? Correct? Yep. So that would be like me playing. I normally play my driver loft finishes at, you know, nine and a half or 10 degrees. It'd be like I would play a 12 and a half degree driver for a 20. You know, let's say the wind's going to blow hard, 20 miles an hour, 25, somewhere in that range. I would play a 13 or 12 and a half degree driver. I would never, I've never even sniffed playing that and maybe play it right at the limit, 46 inches. And yep. then you could play your other driver standard if you if you can kind of hit the stinger driver with your swing, or you could play that a little bit shorter in length, and or de loft it a little bit. So yeah. it would it would be fun. I think I think we're going to see that at, at some point. It'd be easy to figure out which club to take out of the bag to uh, accomplish. Yeah, but. yeah, definitely. Especially if you find a course where the prevailing winds are like downwind and into the wind rather than yep. crosswinds, I guess. Yep, downwind driver into the wind driver. It's just uh, such. It's the most important club in the bag. So why yeah. not? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, before two, I have one more question on wind. Um, 
but I'm going to, I'm going to add in another one. Uh, crosswinds. Yeah. Uh, I know there's probably a lot we could go into here, but I guess what people are trying to do in when there's strong crosswinds is keep the ball online. Yeah. Like is I I understand that judging distance is obviously going to be involved too, but I'm just thinking about if I'm hitting a six iron on a par three from like I don't know 180 or something, and there's a huge left to right wind. I'm thinking how like my thought process is how far left do I need to aim yeah. to have this finish kind of on my on wherever my target is. You know, yeah, yeah. some better players probably try don't aim as far left and then try and have some draw on the ball and they might do the opposite if it's the wind is going in the other direction from right to left they might try and hit more of a cut whereas i think me and most other players would just be aiming further right yep yep. can you um can you dig into the considerations that go into that i guess maybe you'd be in the the elite player category for sure and maybe what the science is and also just why why good players do tend to maybe hit draws and fades uh, rather than just aim further sideways, if that is actually what happens. Yeah, no, I, I think that is what happens. I think it's very player dependent, even on the tour level of, of, of comfort level, golf ball type plays a big deal, speed and trajectory. I think one, one practical thing folks can think about with crosswinds again, is that we can take from what we talked about with hitting into the wind is if you want to just minimize the effect, try to hit a lower trajectory shot. Again, mm-hmm. you're just, even though you're 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 not going to use it to affect the distance as much, you can use it to affect the amount that the 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 sot, the crosswind is going to impact the ball by reducing again the time uh, that the wind is going to be acting on the ball. So that's one thing to consider if you want to try to reduce it. A rule for how much the ball is going to curve. Again, this you know obvious exceptions if you're very high speed, low speed is it's about one yard per mile an hour. So you got a five mile an hour wind. Aim about five yards left, 10 mile an hour wind, aim about 10, 10 yards left. That's if you're not going to curve it. You're just going to hit it straight. So I think the factors there, Mike, on what, what's going to, why somebody would curve it into the wind versus just aim left or right and let the wind do its thing has to do on the tour level or the advanced level of, of what, where's that golf ball going to be coming in and landing? Mm-hmm. And then what's that dispersion pattern going to be? So if, uh, if, the hole might dictate that you want is a better player to draw it into the wind. And then, you know, sometimes you'll have those shots where it starts drawing and the wind's blowing so hard, it'll start fading a little bit at the end. Like you'll have, it'll have a, you know, equivalent of like a double breaker in yeah. a putt again there. <laughs> um, but you're trying to control as the better player, like the, the, the vector of the ball, like how, what is the direction of the ball when it's landing? And so mm-hmm. that's a consideration that I think some of the advanced players would take based on the hole design. So if you got a, a penalty or some hazard or something that's going to be not beneficial to you on the right side and a strong left to right wind instead of, you know, long right or right is going to be, uh, you know, uh, a, a penalty. Maybe that's the scenario where you start to put a little draw spin on it to start with so that when that ball lands and you have your cone of dispersion there, it's going to be landing a little bit straighter to where you are and not coming in from the left uh, yep. in that scenario. So, I you I think as a player, it depends on how much skill you have. Do you practice drawing? Do you practice fading? If that's not something you practice and are comfortable with, I wouldn't even try to do that. I would yep. just aim left and aim right and make a confident, aggressive swing and 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 use that rule we just talked about and yeah. 
probably a little bit of that too in like this stinger driver idea for you know maybe players who are more beginner or you know mm. have just less practice under their belts what they lose maybe from trying you know a very different swing that they're not used to yeah may not be worth the potential benefit from the kind of cool ball flight but exactly that's that's like i guess a lot of things in golf you know what i mean you could you could make sort of a comparison there to you know even like something like pitching around the green you know like the the kind of better shot might be one you know sometimes that flies a bit higher carries the trouble and lands softer yep but a beginner, if they don't have that shot in the locker, they might be better off with a hybrid yeah. running it, you know, for yeah. now. Stick to your meat and potatoes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no doubt about it. But, but then it's fun to have these options as you go on everyone's personal journey in golf, right? 100%. Um, yeah. But it, it is fun to see the tour players change. You know, they might not draw and fade their driver a ton, but they definitely change the vertical trajectory that yeah. we've been seeing. And I, I think, um, like, Pulling, pulling off new golf shots and trying golf shots is one of the most enjoyable parts of playing. It is fun. There's there's obviously a time and place yeah. where, you know, you're going to stick with what's comfortable if it's a particularly, you know, impactful round on a, you know, tournament or competition or yeah. something. But there's definitely times when you're like, no, I'm trying I'm trying this this low driver or this, you know, big draw into the left or right wind or whatever for definite. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up, Mike, because for a long time I was thinking, oh, we got to do everything we can to help the golfer score better, you know? And it's like, you know, even our goals at Ping are help golfers play their best. We've kind of modified those, uh, you know, and maximize their enjoyment of the game because you're right. Sometimes we'll hit shots. It's just for the fun. It's fun. It might not be the most statistical, uh, yeah, uh, prudent play, but boy, if I pull this off, it's going to be tons of fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Definitely. Um, to wrap up on wind, Marty, I know this is something you've done. Um, I saw a video of you uh, with some sort of device that measures wind speed. Mm, yeah. And that struck me as a way that we can practice to improve our ability to judge wind speed, Yeah, which we obviously need to have an idea of before we can use this equation you're talking yeah. about. Because if I think a 10 mile an hour wind is actually 18, and I'm using the equations you suggested earlier, I'm going to be in a bit of trouble. So can you tell us what that maybe tool is and how you use it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we bought a, uh, we, we bought a very high end, uh, anemometer. So that's a fancy word for like a, you know, a real wind gauge. And we had this, uh, we had one that was pretty fancy and it Bluetooth to an app on our phone and we're trying to make a real time, you know, uh, plays like app and all this type of thing. Um, anyone out there though, you can, you can get, uh, a, a couple different levels of, of, uh, um, you know, cost versus complexity, anyone can do. There are apps yep. on your phone that will, uh, there's a wind cup, wind compass app. I think it's a free app, just wind compass app that will, it, it talks to weather stations in your area. So through APIs and all this type of stuff, there's a bunch of wind gauges and weather stations, stations around the U S and, and, and worldwide. It'll just grab the local wind data. Uh, it won't be perfectly accurate because that nearest wind, wind station could be a few miles away mm-hmm. and so it might not be perfectly ac- accurate to where you are but that's one one uh, kind of freeway anyone can kind of say okay is the wind blowing five miles an hour or ten you can also buy one, an anemometer off of amazon like a low-cost one that has a little fan thing and you can kind of hold it up in the air and give you a, a you know a digital readout I, again mike i would liken this to knowing what the percent slope is on a green Right. So if you use Aimpoint for green reading, you might not need to know the difference between a two percent slope and a two and a half. But you better know the difference between two and three. 
So when it comes to wind, I don't think a golfer needs to know the difference between a five mile an hour wind and a seven. But if you can go from five to 10, 10 to 15, 15 to 20, and most of the time in most areas, depending on, on, on where you live, really knowing five, 10 and 15, if you can just know those magnitudes, I'm lucky here because when we're on the range at Ping, and I've been doing this for 18 years, we have all kinds of weather stations, we have a live at, uh, update, I can just feel it. You know, I can sense it in the trees, I can feel it on my skin. It's kind of like one of those one of those things. I think everyone can develop that skill. So either an app, anemometer on Amazon, um, and, uh, and, and try to just calibrate yourself, have that thing going while you're out there playing in the wind and just start to develop and, and, and calibrate yourself once in a while, even afterwards as well. Just again, just like bring the level out to the green and measure and percent yeah. slope on the putting. Um, like obviously people can use them in practice. I assume they're not allowed in amateur tournaments. Do you know? I don't know. Th- you can't get live weather information uh, during a tournament. Um, yeah, that's correct. So that would be a good thing. You know, use that while you're practicing. Use and playing, it, practice, that get a feel for it. And then, yep. okay. And then once you, you know, and again, don't, don't try to determine the difference between five and seven. Just yeah, go for course. five mile an hour intervals. Yeah, that's perfect. You could literally just have a feeling of like one, two, three for five, 10, 15. Absolutely. And you just get a gauge for it that way i think that would help people for sure and definitely 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 knowing the important differences between into and helping is not a case of it's a one or two club wind there's literally double the amount of hurt pretty much that there is help yeah yeah because people people don't don't really get that i don't think yeah one more thing i'll win mike we ran because we run these wind sheets and we ran some for our a few of our lpj tour players this is an interesting scenario where uh downwind the um sometimes especially in your in your long irons um in in its effect on carry distance will become very minimal to the point where if you hit the ball low and have low ball speed you, you can actually be your carry distance can actually be decreased by a helping wind. So let's play the scenario out. Let's say you hit your, you hit your seven iron one forty and kind of low, and you're on a hole and you got water in front of the in front of the green and it's a hundred forty five yard carry and the wind's helping a lot and you're like oh man I gotta hit uh, or it's a you're you're between a five and a six iron and the wind's helping a lot and you're like man I'm gonna hit my five iron to make sure I get over this hazard. Yeah, well, that five iron might actually carry shorter than your six iron. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so yeah. that's an interesting scenario again that to, to think about when it's very downwind or if you hit the ball low. Yeah, no, for definite. That's that's really good info, Marty. We're gonna move on to moisture. So kind of I've I've thought about this a lot sort of recently. I play most of my golf early in the morning, which means that there's moisture on the grass, on the ball, on the club face. I'm sure a lot of other people play morning golf too. Some people play evening golf. Some people might play a mix. So what changes might this lead to in ball flight compared to playing in dry conditions? Wet grass and wedges is really where I've kind of noticed a difference, like hitting pitch shots, you know, maybe out of rough and stuff like this. Yes. so can you dig into moisture and, and how that changes things? Yeah, we've studied this a ton at Ping. And so there's there's moisture, there, there's the impact of humidity in how the ball flies. That's an element of moisture. These are tiny water mm-hmm. droplets. And so I think for all intents and purposes, the listeners can ignore humidity 
on the impact of the ball flies. Now, that being said, that's purely how the ball is flying through the air. So we need to separate humidity and how the ball flies through the air from what you're getting at, Mike, here, which is, okay, you got water on the ball in the club face. It's going to change the friction. What's going to happen? What, what do I do uh, in that scenario? Yeah. And uh, we've studied this a lot at Ping and how that ball interacts with the club face. And, we, you know, I think we, we're, we're fortunate to have some technological solutions to minimize the effect because you got water between the ball and the face or you have a lie in the rough, what happens in the rough, and we, we have some really cool high-speed video of this, and even on you know today's telecast, you can almost make some of this stuff out with Konica Minolta swing cams and all this type yeah. of thing. You've seen these videos online where the ball, the, the club is approaching the ball, and, and it's squeezing little uh, pieces of the grass in moisture. Little water droplets are getting squeezed out of the grass, <laughs> and onto the club face before you make impact with the ball. And so that's the difference between hitting a ball off of the fairway and rough versus off a tee and, and indoors. Uh, so when you're hitting indoors off a mat, that's kind of its own area. We, we can go down that rabbit hole or not. Or when you're out on the golf course where you're hitting off a tee, that's when you're going to have maximum friction. Yeah. So you're 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 unless you kind of drop kick it or very long grass and you tee it very low, you can you can prevent any level of moisture uh, to be on the club face in the golf ball, and you can get really high spin on your wedges. You can get really high spin. So the maximum spin you can generate on the golf course would be you're going to hit a lob wedge off a tee. You know, so pretend Mike, you and I are playing a seventy yard or a ninety yard hole. And we're going to rip a lob wedge off a tee. We can get massive amount of spin. I mean, I can spin at fourteen thousand RPMs off a tee. Uh, but you put that ball on the ground. Now I'm going to get both grass and water between the wedge face and the ball during that impact. I can make the same exact swing, but now I just put that off a nice preferred lie off the ground, mm. and that spin's going to go way down to you know twelve thousand or eleven thousand five hundred for me, depending on the lie and how much moisture is there. Now, if you're playing on a dewy morning, that could plummet a ton, even more. That could plummet to 6,000 and launch super high. And is the ball going to carry further then when the spin is taken off? On a wedge, yes. If it's on a wedge, you're going to to get higher launch, lower spin. And in general, as long as the ball speed kind of stays up there, that ball will fly further and it will be more unpredictable. Yeah. So that's the thing with flyers. I mean, some tour players love flyers because it goes far and it goes straight, but it's the unpredictability of a flyer that can be harmful to your golf game. Yeah. Um, and so what do you do to, so there's a, you know, on wedges, we can minimize the impact of this scenario of, of moisture getting between the ball and the club face through, Groove designs. We have finishes on our, you know, our wedges at Ping have a, a hydro pearl finish, which is hydrophobic. That's kind of a fancy word, uh, meaning the uh, the surface is allergic to water. That's uh, phobic is uh, you know you know kind of allergic, and hydro yeah. is water, so it's allergic to water. And and uh, and golf ball actually will impact that a lot as well. If you uh, and anyone out there can go test this, you dunk your golf ball in your club and dunk your uh, uh, ball. You can get a little bucket of water, bring all these balls out there. If you have any type of little launch monitor that measures spin, 
and club, you can dunk them both in water and hit them and see how much spin loss you get and do that with, you know, our wedges, other wedges, different golf ball types. And that will be, you know, kind of poor man's version of, of, of figuring out what's going to maintain spin from a technology standpoint. But because both club and ball can help you retain more spin, get more friction, and have more consistency in those scenarios that you're talking about, Mike. Yeah, I actually I was going to bring up the Hydro Pearl finish on the wedges, not as not as an ad, um, but I, I do play them. You, you brought me out yeah. and I got I got fitted for for the Glide three point doles, which are great. But what's really cool is like obviously ping you don't know, have talked about the technology and and why it's so beneficial for spin especially in wet conditions and you know as well as anyone sometimes you you know see a commercial for club technology and you're like yeah whatever you know what I mean? yeah, we see yeah, we see yeah, this yeah. every day but what was really cool is that my golf spy also did a test on wedge spin in wet conditions who have no affiliation you know with ping yeah. it's an in- independent testing yeah. and what was really cool i'm kind of summarizing a little bit now it was a while since i looked at their article but i think a lot of the you know high-end wedges were pretty similar in spin rates in dry conditions but then when they tested them in the wet the ping one retained like way more spin than all the others like almost i would say double the amount of spin of some of the others yeah Yeah. retained in the wet conditions i'm not sure the distance of the shot they were tracking but it was really cool to see because that's super cool for like chipping and pitching around the green. If your ball is going to have almost the same amount of spin on a wet, dewy morning yep. versus a dry afternoon, like you don't need to change your landing spot yeah. a lot, which is, which is cool. Yeah, it, it is really awesome because I think as the, as, and our tour players have loved it because the shot that gives them the heebie-jeebies is they hit that <laughs> that pitch shot that rides up the face, it launches high and it just goes, you know, they want to, in, the, in their conditions, control uh, they're pitching with the amount of friction and spin, you know, and hit that low, low launch, hot, medium to high spin shot. I mean, all of them have different techniques, obviously. And so I think that spin retention, another way that that the listener can think about that, it's going to give you more consistency and predictability again, because if you have a, a, a better coefficient of friction between the ball and the club face, it's going to be more predictable. Yeah, it's no, be more predictable. So, yeah, for sure. Where I've been noticing this kind of mainly is that, one of the things I'm I'm kind of trying to dig into to help me get better this year is just being more precise with distance control, like yes. learning, be- <laughs> learn learning better what actually distances my club goes. So, like the last couple of years, I did tons of stuff on technique, but you know because I felt it was more important, basically. But I'm starting yep. to think now, you know, like how far can you go with technique, and do I actually know to within three or four yards? How far my three quarter nine iron and full yep. nine iron goes, or whatever. But something I've done the last um, two weeks, and it's been really enjoyable, is I've rented out a TrackMan hitting bay cool. in the Love area, that. and I've just done it with wedges. So basically, yeah. like fifty to about one thirty is the furthest I'm hitting my pitching wedge in these sessions. So I have cool. a little kind of you know like chart and matrix that I yeah. basically have like I have three speeds for each wedge. Yep. Um, sorry, I have three speeds for fifty, um, fifty four, fifty eight. And then with my pitching wedge, which is an I-210, I just use two speeds because I find that the the real low yeah. speeds, it just doesn't get up in the air enough. It's just a shot I'd never hit yeah. really like, you know. But um, yeah. anyway, I have my carry distances for these clubs that I've gotten, like I've yep. only done it twice, but gotten reasonably good at them. And I'm obviously hitting inside. I'm hitting inside off mats. Yep. So it's, it, I never have rough. 
and it's perfectly dry. Yeah. But I, I play golf at about 6 a.m. So yeah. <laughs> there's tons of moisture on the ground yeah. and probably like half or two thirds of my wedge shots from let's say 50 to 130 are out of the rough. So often I, and I play off Kikuya. So I'm often oh, hitting, yeah. I'm often hitting wedge shots. And for anyone who doesn't know Kikuya in the rough, it's actually really nice rough to play out of. It's like having yeah. a little tee, yeah. but it's wet. And I've, my kind of takeaway is like, I've noticed it. I've hit some shots where like in the simulator, I might be like, that's a 90 yard carry, but I've noticed out of the rough, it might be more like 98 or something like yes. that. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's just, it's just interesting. That's one of the reasons I, I really wanted to ask about moisture with the, with the wedges in particular, you know? Yeah. You're getting that little bit of slip, you know? Yeah. And so what's interesting, man, there's so much on this, this, this topic, Mike, what's interesting is that um, you can actually get, if you hit a four iron, probably out of that Kikuya, uh, because of how the, you know, the forces on the ball that generate the spin uh, are these tangential forces, right? Kind of on the acting on the, the side of the ball, you can get a, a, a reversal in those forces in a different timing of when those forces are applied that you would actually get an increase in spin on a long iron. Mm. And so you'd get more spin. So if you're hitting a wow. four iron or five iron out of there, you'd get, I mean, I kind of call it in slang, I call it a reverse flyer where you get way more spin when you have moisture on the ball. It's an interesting effect in about the seven or eight iron depends on your spin loft and how you deliver it. Um, you get that reversal where you can, you, you, you'll have moisture on the ball and you'll get more spin with lower friction between the ball and the face. And then the wedges, you'll get, you'll get less. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting phenomenon. Stuff. Yeah, no, that that's, that's really cool. Um, last thing I'd like to finish up on here, Marty, we've gone through some of it already for sure. Um, something that prompted to me to ask this question was something I saw you post on Twitter a few days ago. Um, I think it was John Sherman, practical golf. Ask ah. the question, what have you kind of changed in your golf practice that's benefited your game in the last couple of years? And you said practicing one third of your shots on the range off a tee. Yep. Can you, because I, I assume knowing you that you're not just talking about driver and three wood. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So can you dig into why you do this? And then maybe a little bit just like a general overview of differences between rough fairway tee for let's say a mid iron. I, like like yeah. I'm I'm kind of thinking like par yeah. three performance basically versus second shot into a par four or five for longer players. You know. Yeah. Yeah. For, so the first part of your question that this is one of these things, Mike. Is like this seems so obvious in hindsight. You know, but it's uh, we have a partnership at Ping with uh, with Arco. So we have you know literally tens of millions of shots of Ping golfers that have you that are using Arcos, and we use it for all kinds of things that help us make better product. You know, make sure our gapping's good and look at where people are playing golf on the golf course. And so we are studying that, like where do people play golf on the golf course with their different clubs, and with with folks mid and long irons. Uh, we found that about a third, roughly a third of their shots are out of the rough, a third of their iron shots, you know, mid long irons, right? The meat, meat and potato, your irons, you know, five through wedge, four through wedge are out of the fairway and a third of the shots you hit with your irons are off a tee on a par three. Mm. And so I'm like, I was thinking about this going, 
I never, I hit my uh, one out of every three shots I hit on the golf course with my seven irons off a tee. I never, ever practiced off a tee on the range. I'm like, what am I doing? You just assume it's going to be easier because you get to tee it up. Yeah, tee easier, you know. But, you know, that ball's on the tee, you know, you're, you're, Attack angle might change a little bit. Your dispersion, your 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 mental fort, you know, your mental fortitude over the shot's going to change a little bit. Your impact location on the face, obviously, your distance might change a little bit. Your dispersion might change a little bit. Um, it's just one of those things. Like that seems so obvious in hindsight, and we keep having these findings. Like, why don't we do more things like we do on the golf course and bring that into the practice environment? So I started doing that. Um, you know, a few months ago after we had this conclusion and it's been very helpful to my iron game off my, my, my uh, on course play on par three performance. I'm like, okay, now I've hit more of these shots in practice. So yeah. it's that simple, Mike, we just like a 30 or shots are on par threes off of D. I was like, I need to do that when I practice. I have two questions on that before you go into the fairway versus rough versus T. You could flip this around the other way. What about just hitting your par three tee shots off the turf if you're playing on a course that has very nice turf? And then you're hitting all of, or you're basically removing the one third that's off the tee and you're looking at, you know, more consistency. That, yeah, no, that, that's definitely an option. That's definitely an option. I think, uh, I think for me, and you've been out here, I think you probably played out here a little bit in Arizona, is the Bermuda grass gets kind of long and fuzzy in the summertime right. out here. And I'm like, okay, I want that better friction between the ball and the yeah, face. It's yeah, going to yeah. be more uh, variability. You know, if I get, like we, we talked about previously, you get a little grass clippings or moisture between the ball and the face, it might cause a little distance variability. So, in general, I would say if you can put that ball on the tee and get yeah. better friction between the ball and the face, take it. Uh, take it. Now there are some times where maybe you know you you kind of create a little tuft of grass and you slam the club on the ground, put your three wood on a little bit of tee, make sure you hit a little lower on the face, you know, change your swing direction, impact mm-hmm. location. That might change your dispersion downrange. I, I'm all for that, and I, I'll, I'll still continue to do that at times. But I think on irons, in general, if you get that ball on the tee, uh, and hit a little higher on the face, and b- my big thing is friction. Like have better friction between the ball and the club face for better predictability. It's going to be a positive benefit to, to most players. Would you do the same, Marty, if you were hitting one of these like stinger or knockdown type shots you hit with your driver, say? If you were on a par three and it was into a stiff breeze and you were trying to take the ball flight down a lot, would you still use a tee? I still would. Yeah. For two reasons. One, again, better friction. And then two, the other thing to think about, which, which again, might not be obvious to everybody is if you have that ball sitting down on the, the, the grass, that ball needs to travel through some amount of the grass before it gets into the clear air, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the, the things about rough. It's not always, the spin imparted between the ball and the club face. Well, that ball, if you're in deep rough, that ball needs to travel through a lot of rough before it actually gets out into the air and whatever. And it's going to change the spin and lose some ball speed. It's okay. going to depend on the rough, the line and, and et cetera. But that's why I would do it, Mike, is to, to, to eliminate that variable of the ball having to travel through some of the grass. Yep. Uh, as it gets on its way to, in, into the air. Okay, perfect. This might be, like a little bit too general but maybe you have something that can just help uh listeners if we consider t versus fairway versus rough obviously rough 
can mean a lot of different things. Yeah. But if they're if they're hitting, let's say, a, a mid iron, what are we looking at generally in terms of like carry distances and roll and rollouts? Just so if a player, you know, plays, let's just say for argument's sake, plays three holes in a round, they hit their seven iron one sixty, but they've got a one sixty yard tee shot on a par three, they've got a one sixty yard fairway shot, and they have a one sixty yard shot from, you know, let's say an okay lie in the rough, you know, an, yeah. av- an average course, you know, not, not us open style, but it's, it's definitely not as nice as being in the fairway. Yeah. Yeah. So off a tee, generally a player will hit a little higher on the face. And, and we've seen, again, if we're speaking in, in generalities relative to a fairway shot, they could get a little bit more ball speed and that's going to drive, a, you know, a touch more distance, carry distance in total distance off a tee uh, relative to the fairway. And then if you go rough relative to the fairway, um, again, it's going to uh, say on average, someone's going to have slower ball speed because, again, not only does the club need to maybe travel through a little bit of rough, but then that ball needs to travel through some rough to get back out. And so through that alone, uh, you're going to lose some ball speed. So we see that in our Arcos data, too. When, when folks are in the rough, in general, we see their, their dispersions short of the green more. Yeah. Right. So in general, kind of club up. Now, that's independent of the flyer lie scenario, which is another topic in 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 um, in the the place in the bag to be the most careful with the flyer lie is around the nine iron. Mike, that's where you get this uh, uh, kind of change in friction, the spin loft, the impact on the spin and the ball launching higher can you can in the modern days with the nine iron in the old days it was with an eight iron or seven, but in the modern day nine iron lofts, you can get the flyer lie going over the green. That's the only one place uh, that the listeners might need to be just kind of pay a lot of attention to reading the lie is that, you know, you're more apt to get a flyer with the nine iron in pitching wedge eight iron and less apt in the seven, six, five. Uh, you that ball is going to end up probably going going shorter. You you won't have a flyer that goes flies long with a five iron very often. Yeah, how can we get better at reading flyer lies? Anything to look out for? Yeah, I think you want to look at how mu- you want to try to predict how much uh, grass is going to ca- be caught between the ball and the face. And so, if you have the, I think the most dangerous kind of uh, flyer lie is kind of the the light rough. So you're in the very light rough. But you got a couple uh, finger, you know, little uh, blades mm. of grass kind of right behind the ball. And then again, I would say a nine iron, eight iron pitching wedge are the areas to be the most mindful of that. So yep. if, you, if you have a, if something long of the green, penalty long of the green, and you got a nine iron and you got kind of shortest rough, shortish rough with blades of grass right behind the ball in the kind of dry rough too. So our hydrophobicity uh, technology won't come into effect as much so as the roughs dry. That type of lie won't do much to reduce clubhead speed or ball speed, but will right. reduce spin. Will reduce spin, will increase launch in that ball. And because of the impact on the nine iron trajectory, that ball can go booming over the green. <laughs> so be uh, the most careful in that scenario. No, that's 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 great info. What about, um? and this this probably is covered by what you're saying with how much grass will get in the between the club face and the ball if the looks like the grass is growing in the same direction you're hitting i'm guessing that that's going to be inclined to have less but less grass get in the way but if the grass looks like it's growing back towards you a little bit 
like when I hit it onto the rough yes. on the wrong hole and the, yeah. the, it's been mowed <laughs> in the opposite direction, yeah. that's when there's like there's going to be a lot of grass getting in the way. Yeah, it's it's both a lot of grass between the ball and the face. And then again, Mike, I keep going back to it, but then that ball needs to travel through, through the blades of grass go in the opposite direction. So that's going to reduce the ball speed a lot. Perfect. All this is pointing to the more speed you have, the easier it is to get through all that, that yeah, rough. I mean, that's why... Uh, that U.S. Open I played at at, uh, at at Wingfoot was like playing a tournament with no fairways, and you know, guess who won? Bryson DeChambeau just ran away with it. It was like there was no fairways, and then he could use his, his speed and power to to get through that stuff. But that the blades of grass uh, impact the the uh, the amount the club's going to slow down before it makes impact with the ball. Then it's going to have that impact that we talked about of of uh of the friction and how much spins in ball speed is going to impart on the ball and then the, that ball needs to travel through that grass yeah and so if it's down grain you know you're gonna have less club speed reduction on the way in better friction between the ball and face and then less ball speed loss when that ball is traveling yeah. out into the air no that's great yep. um marty i'm a little bit cognizant of time so i'm going to speed up a little bit uh temperature like yes anyone who's played hot and cold I think we've observed the ball doesn't go as far in cold versus hot. Yep. Um, we've actually spoken about this before, that some of it is likely to due to be a clubhead speed effect, because yes. which is a separate topic, but still something yep. that is very important to consider when you're playing. When your muscles are cold and you're wearing more layers, you're probably not going to swing your driver or four iron or eight iron as fast as yes. if it's, you know, 30 degrees Celsius, like 80 degrees Fahrenheit, and you're wearing a shorts and T-shirt and your muscles feel great. So I guess what I kind of like to know is we know that this this is a thing. It, it is real. But yep. what do we need to be aware of in terms of, like, the actual temperature change that's going to make an effect? Like, I don't think 65 versus 70 is going to be doing a whole lot to my golf ball, but in terms of Fahrenheit – but 50 versus 90, which might be like, you know, seven degrees versus 32 degrees Celsius. I had to make sure I went Celsius or my my Irish listeners will give me a hard time. I've been almost fully converted. Um, so, yeah, what sort of ranges are we looking at there? I'm assuming you have an equation worked out or some sort of chart we can think of for how temperature might affect our carry distances. Yeah, no, yeah, temperature. I think you brought it up. You you described it really well. When it comes to temperature, there's the the player themselves, the impact on the club head speed. Then there's the golf ball and the club head having a little bit different modulus. And as things heat up, things are more bendy and flexible during the impact interval. And then there's the impact on the air and the air density. It comes down to air density again. Down here in Phoenix, sometimes they'll shut down the airport because when it gets so hot, um, there's less lift. And so again, there's an impact on distance, but there's an, also an impact on the height. So as the, as the air gets hotter, the ball flies lower. Now, sometimes that's countered by the fact that the golfer swings faster and more ball speed generates more height. So it's kind of all, you know, this scenario yeah. in there, but in general, Mike, yeah, definitely. As it gets hotter, you're going to hit the ball further. Uh, and it's going to depend a little bit on on how hard the players uh, hit it overall. Let me see my sheet right here. I got, uh, let's see, a 30, 30 degrees Fahrenheit temperature change for me on a seven iron is about seven yards. 
Okay. And so, you know, I have these little sheets I make and, you know, I use this, for example, that's a half a club, right? 30 degrees, that'd be a half a club approximately for me. My gapping is about 13 yards there, uh, seven iron to eight iron, seven iron to six iron. So a 30 degree Fahrenheit would be about a half a club. That's it just in terms of the air density of the ball. That's excluding, I might swing, I'm going to swing it a little bit faster. Like you said, I'm, I'm more sensitive to temperature change than others. It seems like that when that was really useful to me, Mike was here during the Phoenix open in January, when I played in it, I teed off uh, early and it was like 50 degrees when I teed off. And by the time I'm on number 16 there and I got my adrenaline going and it's warmer and all that stuff in the, in, in about 1 PM, it was about 80, 80 degrees. So the temperature changed 30 degrees. Now that's kind of rare here in the desert in the winter, but it changed 30 degrees during my round. Um, and so you got a half wow. a club from yeah. just the impact of the air, uh, right there, you know, during your tournament round. That's roughly, I think, about like 15-ish Celsius, just for people listening. If Yes. Yeah? Yep. Okay. So like a 80 to 50 degree Fahrenheit temperature change, which would be basically like in, in the US would be, I'm going to just put like hot versus cold, basically. Yeah, 80, exactly. 80 is pretty yeah. hot. If you go above yeah. 80, like it's really hot. You're in a very, very hot place in the summer. Um, I know you guys can go like 115, but no one should yeah. be playing golf at no. 115. Um, <laughs> and then 50 would be like, I'm going to say that's like early morning, usually a bit chilly, but not not too bad. But most yeah. people don't play golf if it gets much colder than that because it's just going to be not yeah. particularly enjoyable and courses might be starting to get, you know, frosty and that sort yeah. of thing. Um, for uk or our irish listeners that's basically the same thing as going from 25 degrees celsius to 10 degrees celsius 25 would be like a really hot day in ireland or england and 10 would be like chilly but not like super cold basically i just wanted to give a a range there now that's perfect about half a club for you yeah what the difference is there yeah plus maybe i'm gonna say that it might get closer to a full club because of how your body's changed. Totally agree, Mike. I totally agree. So it's that cumulative effect. It's the human body, how fast you're moving at the different temperatures. Then there's a little bit of club and ball. So you want to keep your golf ball in your pocket and things like that. Keep your actual golf ball a little bit warm. Minimize that effect just a little bit. It's not going to do a ton, but it's cumulative, right? And that's So you get really warmed up, then the ball. And then how it's going to fly through the air. And that's huge for you like because well, it's huge for everyone, but for you... You've 13 yards between your irons, which is yeah. basically 40 feet. So let's say you hit a perfect six iron on a par three, but you were one club off because it's a little bit colder yeah. than when you played that same shot last week. You might be 40 feet away from the hole. I know it's oh, that's tricky two-putt territory and stuff like that. That's a great way to think about it. For someone who is slightly less ball speed, let's say they're going to have about a 10-yard difference. That's that's 30 30 feet. feet. So like if you hit a perfectly struck shot, but you get the temp, don't account for temperature, both the actual temperature and your body not moving as well because it's cold, it's going to be, that could be a 30-foot difference. You know, and that, what's probably even more important way of looking at that than, like a 40 foot pot and a 30 foot pot and two putting for par, it's the ones that mean you miss the green. And now yes. rather than having a first pot, 
you're actually hitting a pitch shot out of like raw for a bunker you didn't carry yeah. or something. Yeah. where yeah. the real strokes would would change for the for yeah I mean, you look it up from a strokes gain standpoint i mean this uh you know it, once your pj tour average putter at 30 feet is that's where your average uh is two putts right yeah. so anything yeah, yeah. more than that you 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 might you're bringing in risk of three putting no for sure and i think like golf is so hard to improve at especially kind of once you start going down you know closer to par and under par yeah any ways that you can shave like fractions of strokes per shot that yeah. don't involve actually improving your ability to hit a golf ball better yeah. are really really important to try and milk so things like equipment yeah. strategy learning environment and stuff like this if you're yes. tuned into those yeah. over the course of a season or like a career that can make a big difference when you're you know it's so hard to improve your you know proximity on a seven iron and and things like yep. that you know like you need yeah. you need to stack yourself with with as good a chance as you can yep um marty you're also co-creator of the stack system with sasha mckenzie yeah. what, it, what has happened lately with the stack and what is coming next if you're allowed to tell us oh yeah no that's the, the stack has been uh tons of fun mike we've had some fun uh making some big improvements to the app so we've had some big improvements that are driven by our users, which is really fun. So right coming into season now is we have new programs that are designed specifically for, okay, I've been stacking all winter. What do I do like in season? So we have these creative programs. We have the cruiser program, the flex program, which are built for maintaining your speed gains and nurturing it uh, while you're playing your tournament season. And so that's tons of fun. So you can find that in our latest app update. So we have AI programming, and then we have creative programming, which is user-driven programming. You can pick your poison in there. You can say, I want to train for this many sessions, this much time per week, and the app will kind of, again, guide you through, you know, maybe doing one longer workout cycled with next time it's going to recommend doing a little shorter one and vice versa. So that part is tons of fun, Mike. Those questions that I get really, really commonly from my app users too, because as they're coming into season, you know, it's like most of my app users, they do, let's say, gym workouts where they're maybe doing yep. like mobility, kind of jumping, throwing, lifting. And then they also have their their speed work. And it's often a case of like, Mike, is it, o- is it okay to fit in like, you know, a 15 minute speed session before I go and play or after I go and play? I don't have the 30 or 35 minutes that I had in the winter when I wasn't playing as much. And those you're, I'm often giving, you know, like recommendations in terms of reducing number of sets or swings, but telling them yeah. why it's beneficial to keep going with it to some capacity. Yeah. And this is basically covering that in the app, which is, which yeah. is very Yeah. So that, that's kind of the flex program. The cruiser program is built for training in season, maintaining your speed. And then we have, we, again, a lot, just, it's really fun to be able to make these updates driven by all the questions we're getting from users is we've had a lot of users want to track their uh, club head speed while they're hitting balls. So all the stack training, obviously, is without hitting balls. You don't need a word. It's kind of swing stick fast, kind of skill set development. Um, but we're now allowing folks to capture uh, club head speed while they're hitting golf balls as well. And so you can chart that over time for your own personal curiosity. So we made that update uh, into the app. We have a, a feature, and I'm, I'm guilty of this myself, uh, which is, okay, I've taken a little break, you know, family stuff, work on the way. I had to go on a trip. I came back. I want to continue where I left off. I put 
I'm nine sessions into my, um, you know, neural drive program or whatever it might be, we have a return to form uh, methodology. So it's a couple shorter workouts that help you ease back in and continue on your program if life forced you to take a break, which that yeah. happens obviously to everybody. So that's kind of cool as well. And then we're working on just tons of other uh, oh, yeah, we've updated our rest times. So we found again, we found that uh, we had, you know, we had 20 second rest times in there. We found that by the time the, the, the timer beeped and folks swung and entered their speed, they were actually doing that at like 23 or 24 seconds. So, you know, we've we've uh, improved the rest time so that folks are actually swinging every 20 seconds more things you can only do because, you know, every we have, you know, millions of shots now captured millions of swings captured in the app. And we've we're continuing to make these programming improvements based on based on uh, on the training. So everyone who does, you know, a session is is driving the improvements to the protocols. And we are working on uh, some new practice and uh, golf improvement features in the app that will be hmm. coming down the pipe. We're testing that right now too. Very interesting. Uh, you hoping to increase your own speed was how I first yeah. met you, Marty. We did a gym session in Irvine. You did a, a Southern California trip to see Dana Dalquist and myself. Yep. How is your own speed going? What's your ball speed? Let's say, what was your ball speed before you started kind of real chasing or being interested in speed? Yep. What's the highest you've hit? And kind of what are your goals for, for that sort of thing? Because I know that you are a big believer and advocate in how much of an impact distance can make on scores for all golfers. Yeah, I think that part, I think five years ago, we we would debate that, like how important is speed? And I think everyone's there now, like it's been important. My wake up call was in 2018. I played the PGA Championship at uh, Belle Reve and I got paired with Luke List. And I was hitting it, I'll, I'll say I was hitting it sneaky short, Mike. Like yeah. my swing didn't look that slow, but man, it was slow. I would, didn't use the ground at a narrow stance. I was all twist. I had no lateral, no vertical, like, like embarrassing. You know, I, I didn't know anything about ground forces. But stuff like that. that would have been really commonly taught at like previous to that, like good golfers, your age, yep. let's say coming up, like that would have been common. I would say like probably swing that looked really nice on camera. It looked could, good. Could obviously hit the ball exceptionally cleanly and control yep. distances and stuff. Yep. But stuff that you can't really see that well on camera is what you're talking about. Vertical force, lateral force, and just measuring speed has become so much more common. Sorry. Continue. Yes. Yeah. So that was my wake up call. I got done with that and I'm approaching age 40 and I'm like, I could qualify for the PGA again, but if I ever got in this thing again, I'm just like, I can't hang on those courses, you know? Uh, with those players. And so I was on a mission after that. That's when I came to see you. I came, you know, I went to Sasha. I said, Hey man, you know, what do I, what do I need to do? You know? So we started on this uh, deadlifting program. I just, I went, I just deadlifted heavy yesterday for the first time in a while and a, a tiny bit sore today, which I don't like, I don't like being that sore. Um, but I got, I got on a program where, you know, I wanted to get stronger and I wanted to get stronger uh, to give me more potential for speed and to prevent injury and to help me practice more and feel better. So I got on the, you know, hex bar deadlifting program and got pretty strong on, on that front. Now I'm kind of maintaining where I'm at and that's still feeling great. I'm very much enjoying that training and continue to kind of maintenance mm-hmm. of my, my baseline strength level there. Then I'm getting on, pretty strong just for people. You were up over 400 pounds on a hex bar deadlift. Yeah. 
I did 385 yesterday and I hadn't done that in a while. And I, I could, I, I want to push it again every yeah, yeah, yeah. year, kind of break the 400 barrier, you know? Uh, and so, yeah, so it, it, it felt good. It feels really good. You know, I feel very strong in the, the, the glutes. And I just feel like I'm not going to get injured. I mean, that's my main thing. I feel like I have no risk of a back injury. Which you, you did know? have when you first got in contact with me. I remember reading your yeah. like uh, contact form or whatever and, a back injury was something that you struggled with. And I'm not saying this will work for everyone like this Correct. definitely isn't yeah. medical advice and I'm not a doctor, but you found that getting stronger in those types of lifting exercises was the best thing you did for your back. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I used to have a, you know, I don't know if I still do or whatever medically, but a herniated disc, L4, 5, sciatic pain, all that stuff. I and mean, that was gonzo, you know, that's not even on my mind at all. So that that's probably the thing I enjoy the most. And then that, gives you kind of the base level for me, at least my perspective to do speed training and have that base of not being able, not, not getting injured and give me that potential. Cause now I'm more vertical in my swing. So I worked on my mechanics with folks like Dana and, and grant weight to get more vertical lateral movement. I've spent a lot of time trying to synchronize, like how do I train that and synchronize and actually do that with my stack training. Yeah. So when I'm doing my stack training, it's, double duty. I'm working on my waggle, my flows, how I'm shifting right, how I'm, you know, kind of having a, you know, moving my, my center pressure around and, uh, and, and trying to kick in more, more vertical force and lateral force at the right time. And so fast forward, my account paid off for me. But one year later, I qualified for uh, the PGA at Beth page and I was hammering it, you know, I was, you know, high 170s ball speed. And uh, played great and made the cut. And that extra speed got me down there. When I was in the rough, now I could. Yeah. I was closer to the green, and I could get it up by the green. Yeah, you were you were the best PGA professional in Bethpage Black. The really yeah. re- really cool clip of you on the green with Brooks when he's getting uh, yeah that was awarded the trophy. So, what have yeah. your gains been like, Marty? You got a wake up call when Luke List was bombing it past you in Bell Reef. What sort yep. of speed were you at then? What were you at in Bethpage, and where are you now? So back then I could barely break 170 if it was like a really hot day and warm and all this stuff. I bet I was 168 ball speed or something like that when I played that tournament. Fast forward one year later when I played at Bethpage, I was, you know, probably 175 cruising. But then if I wanted to, you know, crank one up 178 or something like that. And, uh, Which is about and, like, sorry to interrupt now, about like um, two yards roughly per miles per hour for people. So about like 10 10 yard, 12 yards ish kind of thing increase. Yeah. Would you say? Well, I would say I was 168 and then I went to probably one. So like nearly 15, sorry. So like 15, 18, 20 yards almost. Yeah. I was more than that. Yes. And then I improved my fitting, my driver fitting. Cause I was actually, that's with our new optimal launch and spin chart. I was misfit for my driver. So I improved mm-hmm. my balls, my club speed and ball speed, obviously. Then I improved my fitting on my driver. I was actually launching it too high previously for my attack angle. And so I got, I started launching it lower for me and my attack angle. Um, so I gained distance from that. So I was at least 20 yards further through the combination of club speed and club fitting, Mike. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the journey. And now every winter I try to push it on my ball speed to see how much, and I'm getting, but I'm getting older too. But I try to push on my ball speed and see how fast I can get. I've been up to 186 a handful of times, 180, I think I've maybe hit 187 once. I think my life goal would be like, just touch 190, touch 190 one time to see if I could do it. Yeah, you, you know, but when I play golf and my playing swing, 
is uh, is is high mid to high 170s, and I'm very happy with that. Like I don't, you know, obviously sometimes I, you know, oh, I wish I could be 180 something, but I'm also 41 years old and I'm working yeah, yeah. and I have kids and all this other high stuff. High 170s is like uh, Xander, Fino, um, who else is up high 170s? That's where Ram was a couple of years ago. He's gone into the low 180s now. Yep. But yep. I think. I should be able to remember more names off the top of my head, but I think if you can get to like, it's either 177 or 178. I can't remember which. I think that gets you to about the top 35 on tour, which is really, really impressive because you've got like 200 guys that are measured on that PGA tour ball speed list. You've got like about 10 freaks who are, I mean that in the nicest possible way who are maybe like 184 plus. So then you're basically dealing with guys from like, 184 down to like 177 ish that's where i would say like is extremely impressive speed to be able to play with it on a golf course and keep it in play yeah. like that's yeah. that is if you if you play with someone who's like a good player and hitting it at 177 you will be amazed at how good a driver of a golf ball they are like yeah that, that is efficient launch conditions. yeah like yep. that's yep. that would blow you away yeah. I think the funnest part about my journey to more speed, Mike, is that I'm actually driving the ball straighter. I think this this fear of I'm going to chase distance, I'm going to hit all these cuckoo balls. It's like a false fear. I mean, I, I think for some players, if you're not doing the right things mechanically, that, that can happen. Yeah. But that didn't happen for me. I'm hitting the ball further and just as straight, you know, from a percent offline standpoint. Yeah. And that just gives you tons of options as a golfer. You know, like you want to ramp it up on a par five. You know, I got a, a technique and a flow and a rhythm or I'm going to use the ground a certain way and and, and get it up yeah. there closer to 180. Or if I want to cruise one down there or hit some stinger drivers, I mean, this the, the, you just have more options, you know, yeah, and then yeah. you have all the other ancillary benefits of being able to hit the ball higher, like ball speed drives height, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, uh, that Changes is the rest a, of your game, not just your driving. Absolutely. Yep. Helps you get through the rough easier, helps you maintain more spin when you're in the rough and all those conditions. And it drives height in your mid and long iron. So those, 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 you know, on the tour and as tournaments, I play 200 yard par threes with firm greens. You can send a six iron way up there and stop that thing, and, and other players can't. Yeah, that's cool. Justin Thomas and Scheffler are two good examples for people listening. Of, excuse me, of players that are in that level too. I think JT is about one seventy six, and Scheffler is about one seventy eight. Yeah. So, like, that's that's what Marty's popping out in the golf course, and he just plays for fun. It's stacking, you get <laughs> stacking and get that driver fit and try to be sneaky long. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool. Martin, yep. that was really, really enjoyable information. I got a lot out of that. Um, where can people find out more? Obviously, the stacksystem.com. Is that correct? Yep. For the stack? Stacksystem.com. It's the stack system on Instagram and Twitter. Yep. And you're also on Twitter. I'm going to guess that's the best place for people just to send you a message or comment if they have a question on this podcast. Absolutely. Yep. At Jerdy Bird. J E R T Y B I R D. Yep. Excellent. Marty, to make birdies. Yeah, you know? that was that was superb. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to getting this one out. And yeah, we'll we'll stay in touch and talk soon. All right, Mike. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed Thanks a it. lot.